know, some people say I'm crazy. I've been called crazy old man. I've been called the crazy dirty old man. I've been called the wise crazy old man. I've been called the crazy old white man. People keep saying I'm crazy. Well, to you people, thank you because you're right. And this is the Crazy Old Man Network. Hello there, how you doing? I'm back again. Uh, this is a little thing I did on Blog Talk uh, back in April of 2011. And I called it Let's Talk. I may be crazy, but I'm not as crazy as our government. And I'm going to play it. And I can't remember what music was in it, if any. But hopefully I'll be able to figure it out. And don't listen to it. Well, you're going to get links in there. And those links aren't any good anymore. Unless they're blog talk links. Those are all still good, even though I don't use it anymore. So anyway, let's get on with the show.
Hello there, my name's Lee Gaylord, and this is a Crazy Old Man Network. Uh, that song that we just I just played was Bombs Falling, Nowhere to Go. It's a Gaza song collage by David Archer. Uh, today's show, I'm going to play some clips, and... Uh, and I'll be doing some talking too. But the first clip, as you know, I've you probably heard, the United States is the wealthiest country on earth. Do you really believe that? I don't. I believe that it's fast becoming the poorest country on earth. When you measure a country's wealth, you not only measure what they have, you also have to take away what they spend and what comes in, and you'll find out that we're losing money. Well, what it is, our government is losing money for us with the help of big business. Now, big business in the United States, probably if you consider them, maybe we are the wealthiest country on earth. They're wealthier than our country, though. They use our country. They pay, put money into campaigns for both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, they bought Obama. They don't pay taxes, and yet they make all kinds of money. They don't have that much in the way of jobs here because they've gone overseas to make their products. Doesn't make sense to me. 
why do we even let them be here if they cost us money? What if we decide that since most of their operations are out of the country, why don't we just get rid of them? Then they'll stop sponging off us. I mean, they don't do any good for the United States because they don't have people working here. And what we could do is get rid of the wars, stop pan-Israel, and help businesses start up that will hire people in the United States. What could they do? Well, there's a lot of empty auto plants around. We can start making good cars instead of, well, automakers, they still make cars here. Probably the Japanese probably make more cars here than the U.S. automakers. So I guess they can stay, though. General Electric, all they're good for is making our weapons of war. And if we stop the wars, we don't need them. AOL. What does AOL do? Well, propaganda for the United States. But they don't give us any money. We've got a big problem in this country. You, the taxpayers of this country, are the middle class. The rich folks, most of them don't have to pay taxes. Back in the old days, they had to pay about 75% of their income in income tax. But that kept getting lower and lower, and all of a sudden it got to be where they aren't paying. They're being supported by us. Doesn't make sense to me. I got a little tape here, a little audio file. Got it from Russian TV. Fourteen trillion dollar debt. There's no question that the United States is in major debt, but the latest numbers show that the national debt of this country has surpassed $14 trillion for the first time. From June of 2010 to the end of the year, the United States managed to rack up another trillion dollars to its debt. Even scarier, this country is coming extremely close to reaching its statutory ceiling of $14.3 trillion set by Congress last year. So what's going to happen next? And will Congress increase the ceiling even more? Can the United States find a way to stop borrowing? Joining me to help discuss this is professor and economist Michael Hudson from our New York studio. So, Michael, let's talk.
talk numbers. Uh, the United States government borrows $2.6 million every single minute. Congress has raised the federal debt ceiling six times in the past three years. But some people are saying that this time, with the number of Tea Party candidates that just got elected, things might be different. Uh, what's your take? Do you think Congress will vote to raise the debt ceiling yet again? The important thing to realize is that uh, the government doesn't really borrow. It creates money. Uh, the role of a central bank is to finance the government deficit by printing money. So the whole issue about uh, whether the United States uh, uh, has a, a debt problem is largely fictitious. The problem the United States has is the foreign debt problem, and that's not even being discussed. Uh, when it comes to politics, I'm not uh, part of the political discussion over whether they'll raise it or not. This becomes like a horse race. Will Congress really be crazy? What the Republicans would like to do would be to meet, uh, to do something that I think Obama would like, uh, to uh, cure the budget by abolishing the regulatory agencies, uh, emptying out the FBI, uh, stopping the Securities and Exchange Commission from regulation, uh, firing all of the central bank regulators, and essentially letting the financial criminals have a free way. Uh, they'd like to cut uh, what is really needed and use all the money they have for basically political pork giving. Uh, I don't think that's really going to happen, uh, but the ideal is to dismember the regulatory system and essentially turn the United States into a kleptocracy, uh, where anything goes, there's no law enforcement, there's no white-collar crime. Uh, essentially, crime is decriminalized if it's financial white-collar crime. I think that's what the government, uh, would, uh, the Republicans would like to see, and it's probably what Obama would like to see. And the idea is, how can they pretend that there's really enough of a crisis uh, to convince the, uh, the people that it's necessary to abolish uh, the uh, white-collar police force? Bold words. Uh, Michael, recently the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, Austin Goolsby, said this about the debt limit. Take a listen. If we hit the debt ceiling, that's the essentially defaulting on our obligations, uh, which is totally unprecedented in American history. The impact on the economy would be catastrophic. How catastrophic would it be, in your opinion? Uh, it would be like stepping on a piece of gum and having to get it off your shoe. Uh, Adam Smith said in The Wealth of Nations that no government has ever repaid its debt. Uh, and you can say that uh, today. Nothing has changed. Uh, it would be a zero problem. People who talk like that are trying to frighten you. And when a politician tries to frighten you, you can think of, uh, what is it that he wants me to do? How am I being manipulated? Uh, this is pure ignorance. And it's obvious that uh, if Mr. Goolsby knew anything about money and credit, he wouldn't have anything to do with the University of Chicago to begin with. All right, so if these politicians can simply just continue to vote to raise the ceiling every time the debt gets close to that level, what's the point of even having it? I mean, is it just symbolic? And what are they doing to decrease the debt? It seems as if nothing is happening to stop it from getting higher. It's inevitable that the ceiling is going to have to get raised then, right? What they want is a congressional argument over what uh, costs to cut back. 
The Republicans want to essentially uh, prevent the Consumer Protection Agency, for instance, uh, in the Federal Reserve, from having anyone working for it. They want to prevent the Securities and Exchange Commission from having any administrators to find out who's breaking the law. They want to prevent the Environmental Protection Agency from having any inspectors to go out. So uh, the argument over the debt limit becomes an exercise in what regulators are we going to uh, fire uh, first, uh, what elements of the economy will be the first to be decriminalized. That's basically what the argument is about, which shall be de decriminalized uh, to create new monopolies, new free lunches, uh, and less government oversight. Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting to see what this 112th Congress does decide uh, when it comes to the debt ceiling. That was Professor and Economist Michael Hudson from our New York studios. Okay, so tell me we're the richest nation on earth. We are borrowing money to fight these wars. They're also using money that taxpayers put in. And if they stop the wars and if they stop giving all this money to Israel and other countries, Stop being a world police force. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy ourselves. Bring jobs back here. Tell these companies that you took these jobs away, you go with them. Because what good are they to us? Sure, some people work for them, but not as many as there used to be. Those people can go with them. Oh, that's right. They'll have people from other countries taking over their jobs. It will increase unemployment. But, there are a lot of jobs that can be made. Think about it. Think about what we can do. I don't really know for sure. I don't really think anybody does. But we have a problem. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Obama. Obama gave comments and pardons. But what about Momia? He's on death row for a crime he didn't commit. What about Oh, uh, my memory gets screwed up every once in a while. Oh, what's his name? Leonard 
uh, Patrol or whatever, Native American, he's in prison for killing two FBI agents, and he didn't have anything to do with it. And he was railroaded. But let's see what Obama U.S. President did. Barack Obama recently granted clemency to a number of people who committed low-level offenses. But were the pardons misguided, given reports that a number of U.S. prisoners are either wrongfully convicted, over-sentenced, or legally trapped? RT correspondent Jehan Hafez gives us more. The United States of America, home to the world's most incarcerated population, 2.3 million Americans serving time in the criminal justice system. We want justice for Mumia One! Among them, hundreds of political prisoners the U.S. government does not recognize. One former U.S. official suggested there might actually be thousands. So when U.S. President Barack Obama finally decided to execute his pardon privilege, his choices were disappointing to many, like Jim Klemanski, who litigates constitutional and civil rights cases. President Obama has the opportunity of correcting egregious errors, and the people he pardoned were essentially insignificant. Those pardoned all committed low-level offenses, forgery, drug possession, even mutilating coins. Some didn't even go to prison. In the stacks of pardon applications were those of prisoners like Native American activist Leonard Peltier. It's shameful the way that U.S. government is letting this happen to Leonard. Peltier was sentenced to two life terms in prison for allegedly killing two FBI agents. But the initial trial was corrupted. Some argue Peltier's only crime was his political activism. They had no evidence at all that he, that he killed anybody. Mumia Abu-Jamal was a member of the Black Liberation Movement. He too was charged for a crime world dignitaries and members of the European Parliament insist he did not commit. The reason why he's in jail now is because he was framed. Some argue these convictions are simply the most known cases of a systematic attempt to silence those seen as a threat to the establishment. They symbolize uh, the system basically charging someone who's innocent of a crime, but someone in specific who's attached to a movement. Hundreds of other cases fit the description of political prisoners, such as the Cuban Five, in prison for investigating terrorist attacks against Cuba from Miami and the Puerto Rican liberation fighters jailed for fighting for Puerto Rico's independence from the United States. Them along with countless members of the Black Panther Party. Zachary Wolf of the National Lawyers Guild has dealt with many flawed cases. He believes Obama acted with poor judgment. Pardon power is absolute and he can do whatever he wants and he's chosen not to. He recalls previous pardons that were controversial. It's hard to see any justice in the process. There's people who have done harm to the functioning of democracy, like Oliver North, uh, who receives a pardon. Oliver North of the Iran-Contra scandal. A full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. The president who sanctioned state surveillance and continued a vigilante program against political dissidents. President Bill Clinton pardoned billionaire fugitive Mark Rich, while George W. Bush commuted Scooter Libby's sentence. 
the man convicted in the CIA leak scandal. There's an international precedent for recognizing and releasing political prisoners. France did it with its anarchists, Germany with the Red Army, and Great Britain with the IRA, but not the U.S. government. While a Senate committee once recognized abuses committed by the FBI in persecuting activists for political reasons, Barack Obama continues a long tradition of presidents who refuse to grant their power pardon for America's political prisoners. Jahan Hafez, RT, Washington, D.C. Okay, now we're going to go to democracy now. Uh, this morning show and news headlines. From Pacifica, this is Democracy Now! As of the end of 2010, more than 60 IAEA member states had informed the agency that they were considering introducing nuclear power programs. Almost all the 29 countries which already had such programs planned to expand them. Radiated water is pouring into the ocean next to Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The radiation is several million times the legal limit. What does this mean for nuclear power worldwide? We'll go to Tokyo for the latest and we'll speak with Greenpeace about how demonstrations against the use of nuclear power have drawn thousands in India, South Korea, Germany, Japan, Brazil, Taiwan and elsewhere. Then the DEA has seized a chemical used in lethal injection in Georgia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Texas is set to use a new drug for the first time in an execution tonight. It's shrouded in secrecy. Then the founder of the Janine Freedom Theater is gunned down in front of his theater. We'll remember Giuliano Mercani. My name is Giuliano and I'm the director of the Freedom Theater in Geneva Refugee Camp. The Freedom Theater is a venue to uh, join the Palestinian people in their struggle for liberation. We believe that uh, the third intifada, the coming intifada, should be cultural with poetry, music, theater, cameras and magazines. Giuliano was a leading uh, figure in the Palestinian creative nonviolent resistance. We'll go to Janine to speak with the director of the acting school at the theater. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In a major policy reversal, the Obama administration has decided to try five men accused of plotting the 9-11 attack before a military commission at Guantanamo instead of a civilian court. In November 2009, Attorney General Eric Holder announced Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four others would be tried in a federal court in New York City. But the White House later abandoned that plan due to political pressure. On Monday, Holder criticized Congress for blocking attempts to try the men in a civilian court. Had this case proceeded in Manhattan or in an alternative venue in the United States, as I seriously explored in the last year, I am confident that our justice system could have performed with the same distinction that has been its hallmark for over 200 years. Now, unfortunately, since I made that decision, 
members of Congress have intervened and imposed restrictions blocking the administration from bringing any Guantanamo detainees to trial in the United States, regardless of the venue. As the President has said, those unwise and unwarranted restrictions undermine our counterterrorism efforts and could harm our national security. The Obama administration's plan to use military commissions has been widely criticized by many legal and human rights groups. Anthony Romero, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, said, quote, the attorney general's flip-flop is devastating for the rule of law. In news from Capitol Hill, Republican House Budget Committee Chair Paul Ryan set to outline a budget plan today that would cut more than $4 trillion from federal spending over the next decade and make sweeping changes to the nation's Medicare and Medicaid programs. Medicare now pays most of the health care bills for 48 million elderly and disabled Americans. The Wall Street Journal reports Ryan's plan would essentially end Medicare as a program that directly pays those bills. Healthcare advocates say the proposal would shift more health care costs to older Americans, while the block grant proposal for Medicaid would lead to reduced benefits and make fewer people eligible for the program. Ryan appeared on Fox News Sunday this week. Medicare itself literally crowds out all other government spending at the end of the day. We can't sustain that. We've got to get Medicare solvent. In Ivory Coast, fighters supporting Alassane Ouattara have launched an assault around the presidential palace in an attempt to oust incumbent President Laurent Gbagbo from power. Ouattara is recognized by the international community as the winner of last year's elections. A spokesperson for Ouattara's government has claimed its troops have occupied Gbagbo's official presidential residence further to the east in Abidjan. There are reports that Gbagbo is negotiating his surrender and has requested a ceasefire. On Monday, attack helicopters from the United Nations and the French military attacked Bagbo's presidential palace. U.N. helicopters also fired on a military camp of troops loyal to Bagbo. The U.N. says its actions were in line with the mandate given by the U.N. Security Council to neutralize heavy arms used against civilians. Alain Leroy, U.N. Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping Operations, said heavy arms were being stored near the palace. Uh, I think there are heavy weapons very close. Uh, I, uh, we have to see uh, from the image of the uh, by satellite where they are, but they are very close. Some are very close to the residency and the presidential palace, yes. Uh, fired on the presidential palace? Yeah, I think uh, uh, the, 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 the mandate is to fire only to heavy weapons, even if they are close to the presidential palace, if the heavy weapons can't threat, can threaten the It's not, no point to to fire at presidential palace if there are no heavy weapons, but we understand there are heavy weapons very close, and that's what they are is fired at. Meanwhile, the coast of Abidjan is facing a humanitarian crisis. Residents say little food remains in the city. We have a food problem this morning. Everywhere we go, we can't find anything to eat because the war created this whole situation. We don't want war in Africa, particularly not in Ivory Coast. We hate this situation. We are tired of it. The Wall Street Journal reports the FBI has begun questioning Libyans and Libyan-Americans living in the United States. The FBI has not publicly acknowledged the program, but the Journal reports agents are attempting to uncover potential Libyan-backed spies or terrorists, as well as gain intelligence that might help allied military operations. 
In 2003, the FBI questioned thousands of Iraqis and Iraqi Americans as part of a similar program called Operation Darkening Clouds. That effort led to the compilation of information on more than 130,000 people, prompting a lawsuit by the New York Civil Liberties Union. In news from Libya, rebel fighters have rejected a proposal that would end Muammar Gaddafi's rule but leave one of his sons in power. Ali Ojali is Libya's former ambassador to the United Nations. I believe that uh, this, is, this initiative is, dead, uh, is born dead from the beginning. Uh, we have to keep the, uh, the pressure on Gaddafi, the political pressure, the military pressure. That's the only thing that will make Gaddafi move and leave the country. Without this, I think we, 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 we will not be able to, 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 to reach our goal, we will not be able to reach our hub. We cannot stop in the middle now. In other Libyan news, rebel forces are preparing to begin exporting oil in an attempt to raise money to fight Gaddafi's forces. A tanker is expected to soon leave eastern Libya bound for Qatar, containing one million barrels of high-quality crude worth about $100 million, Libya's Africa's third largest oil producer. In Yemen, at least two protesters have died in the city of Hadaida. Uh, thousands of people took to the streets to protest the state's violent crackdown on demonstrators. At least 14 protesters died Monday. In Washington, the State Department harshly criticized the violence. It's appalling, as you just uh, uh, recounted. Uh, the, the, the violence is, uh, is, uh, is mounting, and uh, we're very concerned. Uh, we condemn all acts of violence against peaceful protesters, and we obviously can extend our, our condolences to the family and friends of those killed. Uh, and we urge the Yemeni authorities and the government to uh, ensure security forces exercise maximum restraint. Israeli President Shimon Peres is in Washington today for a meeting at the White House with President Obama. The meeting comes one day after Israel announced plans to build 942 new housing units in the Jewish settlement of Gilo on the outskirts of Jerusalem. The settlements are seen as illegal under international law. In news from the West Bank, the head of the Janine Freedom Theater, Giuliano Merhamis, has been murdered. He was seen as leader in the Palestinian creative nonviolence resistance movement. Earlier today, Palestinian Authority security officials arrested a Hamas operative in Janine suspected of involvement in the murder. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. The former carnival singer, Michel Martelly, has won a landslide victory in Haiti's controversial presidential runoff elections. Haiti's Provisional Electoral Council says Martelly won 68 percent of the vote, easily beating former First Lady Mirlan Manigat. The election was marred with problems. About three-quarters of Haitians did cast votes in the elections. Candidates from Haiti's most popular political party, Famille Lavalas, were banned from running. Martelly was included on the runoff ballot only after the United States and other nations pressured Haiti to include him. One of the world's largest providers of marketing email services, Epsilon, has warned its clients that they were exposed to what may have been the largest private information breach in U.S. history. Clients of Epsilon include J.P. Morgan Chase, U.S. Bank Corps, Citigroup, Capital One, Barclays Bank, Best Buy, TiVo, Walgreens, Brookstone, and The New York Times. Epsilon says a computer hacker infiltrated the company, seized private information, mostly names and email addresses of customers of their clients. Millions of students may have also been affected. One of Epsilon's other clients is the College Board, which administers SAT tests. 
In Wisconsin, voters are heading to the polls today in a closely watched race for a seat on the state Supreme Court. Many have categorized today's election as a referendum on Republican Governor Scott Walker's anti-union agenda. The race pits incumbent <coughs> state Supreme Court Justice David Prosser, a conservative, against Joanne Kloppenberg, an assistant attorney general who's received the support of the state's unions. In other news from Wisconsin, Governor Walker is coming under criticism for hiring the son of prominent campaign backer to a well-paid government post. 26-year-old Brian DeShane is being paid over $81,000 to oversee environmental and regulatory matters and dozens of employees at the Department of Commerce. Some have questioned DeShane's qualifications. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel has revealed DeShane has no college degree, little management experience, and two drunken driving convictions. His father's a longtime lobbyist for Wisconsin Builders Association. And in labor news, rallies were held across the country to mark the 43rd anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. In Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, more than 5,000 people attended a rally organized by the United Mine Workers Association. Speakers included United Steelworkers President Leo Girard. This fight is about the future, this fight is about the economy, and this fight is for our kids and our grandkids and the kind of democracy they'll have with us. Solidarity forever. Stand up, fight back, no backstep. We will win because we will stand together. Solidarity forever. In Washington, D.C., about 2,000 people marched on the D.C. offices of Coke. I don't know what happened there. Well, uh, I guess what we'll do is we'll switch to the death penalty. Uh, there's a problem with the lethal injections. And uh, this will tell you about it. I'm back. There is an execution in Texas tonight, and we'll also talk about the drug used in lethal injection that the DEA has been uh, that the DEA has been seizing in state after state. Stay with us. The Iron Lady by Phil Oaks here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Tonight, Texas plans to use a new lethal injection procedure 
for the first time in three decades. Like several other states, Texas had to change its execution process due to a shortage of sedatives, sodium thiopental. The new process was shrouded in secrecy until recently. Now records reveal Texas prison officials chose a replacement execution drug without consulting a medical professional. The documents also show officials relied on news articles to help them choose a sedative for the state's three-drug lethal injection cocktail that's intended to prevent pain, inhibit muscle movement, and stop the inmate's heart. Now, instead of the drug sodium thiopental, Texas will use a substitute drug called pentobarbital, a surgical sedative often used to euthanize animals. About a dozen states are experimenting with their execution procedure after the only American manufacturer of sodium thiopental announced in January it's halting production in the United States. Attorneys representing death row prisoners argue the new methods suffer from a lack of oversight to ensure they're humane. Prison officials in four states are also accused of trying to stick with using the original drug sodium thiopental by purchasing it from a questionable overseas source. On Friday, the Drug Enforcement Agency demanded Kentucky and Tennessee hand over their supply of the drug because of concerns it may have been illegally imported. Just weeks before, the agency seized Georgia's supply of the drug, which was purchased from the same British-based company called Dream Pharma. The company operates under the back of a driving school in London. Well, in Texas, there's an extra layer of alleged illegal behavior and how the state acquired the replacement execution drug it plans to use tonight. New documents reveal the state used a DEA registration number registered to a hospital that hasn't existed since 1983. We're joined now by the attorney who obtained those records. Maury Levin teaches at the University of Texas Law School's Capital Punishment Clinic, represented death row prisoners in state and federal courts since 1993. She's co-counsel for Cleve Foster, who's scheduled to be executed tonight, 6 p.m. Texas time. Foster is scheduled to die for killing a Fort Worth woman in 2002. We're also joined by Richard Dieter, Executive Director of the Death Penalty Information Center in Washington, D.C., a nonprofit group that aims to educate the public about capital punishment. Um, let's start in Austin. Maury Levin, talk about what you've learned about the drug being used in this new lethal, lethal injection cocktail. What I've learned is fairly minimal uh, because the nature of the process has been, um, its, its hallmark has really been secrecy and a lack of transparency. We have had to um, go to the courts uh, to compel the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to hand over information about that, how they were going to execute Mr. Foster, um, who's now scheduled for execution today. Uh, and they didn't hand over that information until three weeks ago. Um, so what, what we've learned, we've learned uh, through a lot of effort. And um, it includes a really astonishing lack of care and deliberation uh, in the manner in which they uh, chose to switch to the drug pentobarbital instead of sodium thiopental and uh, the procedure by which it uh, is being incorporated into the execution protocol and the execution protocol itself, none of which was you know, vetted to the public um, for you know, comment. Uh, or, or consideration by those, you know, who have really valid concerns about that, how, how executions are carried out in Texas. Mm -hmm.
Richard Dieter, can you talk about the significance of this, of the state seizing these drugs uh, in the DEA in different states? Sodium thiopental, the first drug that's in controversy, this is the linchpin that has been used in executions for 30 years in the United States, and now all of a sudden uh, it's being replaced because it's, it's in short supply around the world. And, and states are doing this in, in sort of a haphazard, experimental way rather than uh, through the expert uh, testimony of doctors about what would be the the best way to proceed. And, and so we have a lack of due process, a lack of uh, transparency. Uh, when New York changed from uh, hanging to uh, the electric chair a uh, hundred years ago, they had a debate in their legislature and then it eventually went to the Supreme Court and they said, well, at least there was, there was some uh, due process, some, some care about this being a more humane procedure. We haven't had that in Texas and a number of other states. Instead, there's you know, pulling drugs from uh, questionable overseas sources, using drugs that might work, might not, who knows? It's a, it's a bit of an experiment on human subjects, of course, who are unwilling human subjects, and that raises a lot of ethical issues as well. What do you think has to happen now, Richard Dieter? Well, I think that the states need to have more transparency. Why not have a, uh, a procedure where people can comment, where experts, doctors, anesthesiologists could say, pentobarbital, this new drug that you're about to use, uh, has adverse reactions on certain people, people, uh, you know, maybe allergic to it, or it doesn't work as long as the drug you're replacing. Uh, and it, it's crucial that this drug work because the next two drugs, everybody agrees, are extremely painful. Uh, that, you know, we, we can kill human beings, but we're trying to do it humanely, and that all depends on the first drug working. And, and this is brand new. After 30 years, we're, we're trying something brand new. That requires the care. Uh, that a civilized society would use for, for humane processes. Uh, but Ohio has gone forward, Oklahoma has gone forward, now Texas is going forward uh, with something that's relatively untried. Um, Maury Levine, I wanted to read to you this letter I have from a Danish company uh, to the Department of Re Rehabilitation and Correction. This one is in Columbus, Ohio, but it's been sent to many states. Uh, it's the Lumbeck uh, Corporation. Um, it says, in the wake of the decision by Hospira to cease production of sodium thiopental, which is used in the execution of prisoners, Lundbeck has become aware that the state of Ohio has now decided to use Lundbeck's product, Nembutol, which is pentobarbital sodium injection, for this purpose. Lundbeck is adamantly opposed to the use of Nembutol or any product for that matter for the purpose of capital punishment. We recognize, the letter goes on to say, that we cannot control how licensed healthcare professionals use this or any pharmaceutical product. Nevertheless, we urge you to discontinue the use of Nembatol and the execution of prisoners in your state because it contradicts everything we are in business to do, uh, provide therapies that improve people's lives. And it's signed by um, Stefan Schuberg, who is the president of Lumbeck, Inc. Uh, your thoughts on this and what this means? My understanding is that that letter was sent to uh, officials with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice as well. Uh, you know, I think it just, 
it points up the uh, uncomfortable uh, intersection of what are necessarily, uh, you know, medical drugs, drugs that are intended to help people and their use in executions and the killing of people. Um, when, and, and I don't know the degree to which Texas took that letter or Lundbeck's uh, sentiments into account. Uh, we do know uh, that according to an affidavit given by Rick Thaler, who's the director of the uh, Correctional Institutional Division of TDCJ, um, who is the person tasked with uh, making the decision about uh, the drugs and how the executions in Texas are carried out, that what he considered, according to an affidavit by him, in making the switch to pentobarbital um, were, you know, news reports from Oklahoma that a couple of executions that had taken place there um, proceeded, uh, you know, without apparent uh, problems. And uh, some of the legal pleadings in Oklahoma litigation and the report of the state's expert in Oklahoma. He did not apparently bother to look at uh, the, the pleadings of the other side or the expert who gave a declaration and offered testimony um, uh, on behalf of the inmates' attorneys. I mean, you know, and all of this points up the fact that there was, you know, there was at least some kind of process in Oklahoma where some of these issues were considered. And the fact that it was uh, considered to some degree in Oklahoma uh, doesn't resolve um, the question or, or the need for transparency and process here in Texas. It's, uh, you know, it's a different system. We do use the three drug protocol, uh, but, you know, it's a different execution chamber. It's a different execution team. Um, all the protocols are different. And what are you asking so, for in the case uh, of what are you asking for in the case of um, of tonight's execution? What are you demanding in the case of the execution of Clee Foster? Well, I mean, we're we're asking. We have a couple of different things that we're asking for from from different venues. Uh, we filed a lawsuit. Uh, seeking, uh, asking the courts to declare this new protocol using pentobarbital void for failure to comply with the Administrative Procedure Act. And lest we think that that is just some kind of administrative requirement, um, we should remember that the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, um, and the requirements reflected in that law are those that are at the heart of open government, requirements of notice and comment and open meetings. So uh, we did ask the trial court in Travis County to declare uh, the protocol, the 2011 uh, execution protocol void. We were turned down uh, in that request and that's on appeal. Um, we are also asking, we have, we have sent letters, and you referred to this in your introduction, we have sent letters to the Department of Justice uh, in Washington, D.C., to Attorney General Eric Holder, and to the Texas Department of Public Safety, uh, Stephen McCraw, here in Austin, 
outlining what we believe to be illegalities in the manner in which Texas purchased uh, these drugs that they're planning to use in Mr. Foster's uh, execution. And frankly, as far as I understand it, in the manner in which they've been purchasing drugs since 1983, uh, the authorization number that is required uh, to purchase controlled substances uh, is registered to the Huntsville Unit Hospital, which was shut down um, in the mid-80s. So we're looking at over 25 years of, uh, of purchases. Um, using an authorization number registered to an entity that no longer exists. We're going to leave it there. Exist. Uh, Maury Levine, I want to thank you for being with us, co-counsel for Cleve Foster. He's scheduled to be executed tonight in Texas. She's represented death row prisoners since 1993 and teaches at the University of Texas Law School's Capital Punishment Clinic. And thanks to Richard Dieter, executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. This is Democracy Now! When we come back... Okay. Uh, good news for Cleve Foster. Uh, his execution did not take place. The United States Supreme Court granted a temporary stay of execution for, to Cleve Foster, a former Army recruiter who was convicted of killing a woman he met in a Fort Worth bar. It was the second time this year Mr. Foster had been scheduled to be executed. Tuesday evening in Texas, had been spared by the Supreme Court hours before his appointed death. The reprieve for Mr. Foster, 47, will remain in place while the court examines whether he received effective counsel during the course of his case and considers the questions about his conviction raised by his current lawyers, Maury Levin, one of Mr. Foster's lawyers. The Supreme Court denied Foster's appeal in January, but agreed to reconsider on Tuesday morning. In the state court, Mr. Foster's lawyers are also challenging the legality of his execution based on one of the drugs that is being used in a lethal injection. I'm thrilled that the Supreme Court stayed Mr. Foster's execution, and we hope that they will be looking at the issues raised, including effective habeas counsel and Mr. Foster's claims of innocence. Mr. Levin said, I am also relieved that at least today we will not be seeing an execution in the midst of the chaos surrounding questions about the lethal injection. Mr. Levin said, she, Ms. Levin said she suspected that there was a link between the Supreme Court's decision to stay Mr. Foster's execution and two other decisions the court made recently involving death row inmates. In the first, the Supreme Court last month agreed to hear the appeal from Corey R. Maples, who has been sentenced to death in Alabama for killing two people after a New York law firm representing him mistakenly sent back unopened copies of the ruling and had been mailed to it from an Alabama court. And Monday, the Supreme Court delayed the execution of Daniel L. Cook, who was on death row in Arizona, and was scheduled to be executed on Tuesday. Lawyers for Mr. Cook also had been convicted 
who has also been convicted of murdering two people, said have said that his initial lawyers failed to represent evidence of extreme physical and sexual abuse. Mr. Cook endured, endured as a child. Each of the cases involved around revolves around ineffective counsel. Lawyers for Mr. Foster, a veteran of the Persian Gulf War, say he also got a substandard defense. He was convicted in 2004 of killing the woman Nanu Rapal, a 28-year-old Sudanese immigrant. Mr. Foster's roommate, Sheldon Ward, was convicted of fatally shooting Miss Powell. The prosecutor said Mr. Foster had aided him in the murder. Both received death sentences. Mr. Ward died in prison last year. Now, I don't really know enough about the case to judge, but according to this, he got the death penalty for aiding and abetting in the murder. Most of the time, if you're aiding and abetting, you don't get the death penalty. You get life in prison, I think. But he's poor. So that's what counts. Uh, I was going to mention another case that, where, uh, oh, the young lady that was executed recently. Uh, her IQ was just, I think, one point above being an, uh, a mentally handicapped, I guess you'd say. And to listen to her talk uh, sounds to me like she was retarded. And person I actually did the killing didn't get the death penalty from what I remember but he said that she's the one that planned the killing and if you see the videos about her there's no way in hell she could have planned a killing but she was executed anyway because the system doesn't care whether you're guilty or innocent. If you're convicted, innocence doesn't matter at all. Even if they know you're innocent, they'll still execute you. In a lot of cases, the only way you'll get a retrial is if you prove that you had faulty defense counsel or that you were framed. But new evidence in a lot of states doesn't count. Uh, cases of, well, case of uh, Troy Davis. 
his uh, witnesses recanted their testimony. Seven of the nine. One of the nine is, according to nine people, is a real murderer. Doesn't make any sense, does it? If you go to my, if you go to archive.org and put in Lee Gaylord, and there are some cases there, and uh, the case of Vincent Simmons, who's in Angola, been there for about 35 years for raping two white girls who weren't raped, according to the medical report. One of them was still a virgin, and the other one there were no signs of rape. And Of course, since they weren't raped, there's no DNA evidence. They tried to get him to... First of all, what happened was he was shot by his interrogators. Uh, he was pushed by the one guy, and as he got up, he pushed him back and was shot. And so they found out they didn't die, they took him to jail. And after he was convicted, on the way to prison, they tried to kill him. They tried to get him to run away so they could shoot him in the back. Like I say, he'd been in prison for 35 years for a rape that never happened. And that happens a lot. That's down in Louisiana. The prison he's in, Angola, is a plantation that uses slave labor, prisoners. Legally, prisoners can be used as slave labor. Which doesn't make much sense to me. Most prisons, when the prisoner works, he gets paid, but in Angola, I don't believe he does. Anyway, I think what I might do, tell you about tomorrow night. Tomorrow night is a two-hour show. It's Democracy Now!, November 5th, 2008, about, it's two hours about President Obama. And uh, if you do decide to listen to it, uh, you can, like I say, it's a two-hour show, and the whole two hours will be the recording. But if you want to talk about it, as long as you call in before midnight, you can talk about it. You won't be on the air, but it'll be in the archives. 
And most of the people who listen to the shows in our archives. So, and then Thursday and Friday night, we have Malcolm X tributes. Thursday night will be about, well, they're both very much about his life. But they're, and then Friday night will be, there's two shows on on them. Thursday night, I'm pretty sure the, the whole hours, Malcolm X, the whole two hours. And then hour and a half on Friday night, and after that, we'll have a chance to do some talking. I want to play a, this is called a, He Spoke Malcolm X Tribute. Since the federal government has shown that it isn't going to do anything about it, but talk, then it is a duty. It's your and my duty as men, as human beings. It's, a, it's our duty to our people to organize ourselves and let the government know that if they don't stop that clan, we'll stop it ourselves. And then you'll see the government start doing something about it. But don't ever think that they're going to do it just on some kind of morality basis. No. If you judge him just because he was a Jew, that's not as bad as judging him because he's black. Because a Jew can hide his religion. He can say he's something else. But a lot of them do that. They say there's something else. But the black man can hide. When they start indicting us because of our color, that means we're indicted before we're born. Which is the worst kind of crime that can be committed. Yo, we stayed in the same place, hailed from the same race. Even though I never saw you, know we thought the same thing. Both had a little white, still wasn't treated right. But the fact that we were mixed makes more like the first time i heard it it became so true to me can never get equality without our own unity i know that you were muslim i'm a catholic but we preach the same all got the same figure mine just got a different name born in 9-1 you went down into his spot but every time i hear your voice shoot to me you're still alive your ideas still living you inspire me to write and i keep on going persevering through the fight now look what you started not a clan is so scared got sheets in the stands humiliated when they Somebody tried to tell me Malcolm X was a racist I just found and said nothing I just thought that it was crazy They are violent when their interests are at stake But all of that violence that they display At the international level When you and I want just a little bit of freedom We're supposed to be non-violent They're violent They're violent in Korea They're violent in Germany They're violent in the South Pacific They're violent in Cuba They're violent wherever they go But when it comes time for you and me To protect ourselves against lynchers they tell us to be non-violent. Nah, look, it's by any means necessary. That's what she told me. That's the reason why you let you there. Heard you used to count your head and slick your bag. Used to try the same thing, but I had too many masks. Used to think I had a problem, but just now I understand that my wrist is so beautiful. I'm proud of what I am. No, I ain't never scared. Take a stand to the clan. They ain't never give me down. I was stand like a man. I know that times have changed. Ain't as bad as before, but I still get looks when I walk into a store. And until that all stops, then the fight never stops. I'll be pushing for society. Changes on the spot. 
know you said some things that the nation didn't like, but the nation is corrupt. Y'all can sue me, but I'm right. And I gotta say, gotta speak it while I got it. What kind of man kill another when his kids is watching? And brothers and sisters, if you and I would just realize that once we learn to talk the language that they understand, they will then get the point. You can never reach a man if you don't speak his language. A man speaks the language of brute force. You can't come to him with peace. Why good night? He'll break you in two. As he has been doing all along. Can't hide what I am. I don't mind. It's okay. Cause I'm colored and I wouldn't have it any other way. See, I know who I am. And I know what I stand on. He stood for the same thing. Gotta take a stand. Y'all still happening. Revolution rides out. Look, we about to put a brother in the White House. Look for Dr. King, and I thank Rosa Parks for Malcolm X is my hero, my light in the dark. They have uh, perfected the art of making Negroes be afraid. And as long as the Negroes are afraid, the Klan is safe. But the Klan itself is coward. Hey, they never come. One of them never come after one of you. They all come together. Sure, they're scared of them. And you sit there when they put them the rope around your neck, saying, "Forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do." As long as they've been doing it, they're experts at it. They know what they're doing. If Rockwell's presence in Alabama causes harm to come to Dr. King or any other uh, black person in Alabama who's doing nothing other than trying to uh, enjoy their rights, then Rockwell and his Ku Klux Klan friends would be met with maximum retaliation from those of us who are not handcuffed by this nonviolent philosophy. I am not a racist in any form whatsoever. I don't believe in any form of racism. I don't believe in any form of discrimination or segregation. Uh, not too long ago, I think about nine months ago, they'll say in the next recording I do, the United States snatched a Russian airline pilot. I think it was in Liberia. Again, I'll be in the recording. For drug smuggling. According to his wife, he's never been to the United States. Of course, it's international drug smuggling. And from what I understand, he hasn't been to the places where they say he smuggled drugs to. And the Russians are quite upset, and I would be too if I were the Russians. In fact, this is a Russian TV that had to record it, and I recorded it from and his wife just found out where he was. She'd been wondering what happened to him. See, the United States has a habit of kidnapping people. Bring them to the United States, whether they're innocent or guilty. And in this case, well, I'll let you listen to this. It's very interesting. A Russian pilot accused by the U.S. of international drug trafficking is facing trial in a New York court. 
Konstantin Yeroshenko was arrested last year in Liberia and brought to the States illegally, according to his lawyers. And as Anastasia Cherkina reports, some see a tendency of America snatching people and trying them on its own soil. Alleged tons of cocaine, a pilot snatched up and brought to a foreign prison, and a wrong fax number. This is the case of Konstantin Yeroshenko, a Russian pilot in his 40s, scooped up by U.S. officials in Liberia last year, brought to a Manhattan jail, and along with four other suspects, charged with international drug trafficking. For a long time, he did not even know where he was. When he was brought to the U.S., he was put in solitary confinement, and he didn't even know he was in the United States. Constantine's wife, Victoria, just arrived to New York. She says her husband was kidnapped by American agents, while America says Yaroshenko was smuggling drugs to South America, Africa, and Europe, mostly from Venezuela and Liberia. The pilot has complained he was beaten and tortured following his arrest. They tried to pick fights with him, provoking him constantly. Kosti tried to stay away from all that. He asked them, why are you treating me like this? I didn't do anything to you, and I have not been found guilty. Victoria believes the case against her husband was fabricated by the U.S. Why the U.S. is involved in this is unclear. He has never been to the U.S. in his entire life. He never had a U.S. visa and was in third country upon his arrest. When Konstantin Yeroshenko was arrested, Russian officials were not duly notified, and Moscow cited a breach of international law. We have uh, uh, apologized to Russia. The State Department's excuse? We pressed the wrong button on the fax machine, <laughs> to be brutally honest. Notifying Romania instead of Russia. To observers, this seemed a joke and a series of questionable details in this case. The idea that there's a, a bank of buttons that they push, I guess if they pushed the next one, it would have gone to Rwanda, which is next in the alphabetical list. So uh, that sounds like a, a very strange story. I'm, I don't think anyone would buy that. Yeroshenko's case is often compared to that of Victor Boot, similarly snatched up by the U.S. and Thailand and currently on trial in America for arms trafficking. Some see a tendency here. If they can't use Interpol, they can't use... Uh, picking up the phone to Russia and, t and trying to talk about this, just going out and kidnapping people. I think this is part of the carryover from the Bush-Cheney administration. The defense team has long labeled the case a provocation and unsuccessfully called for its dismissal. The prosecution, meanwhile, has been fighting to limit the scope of issues that can be addressed during the hearings. They want to exclude questions regarding the legality of trying Yeroshenko in a U.S. court alleged violations in the investigations leading up to his arrest, and official conduct during and after the pilot's arrest. Essentially, all the main arguments of the defense. After almost 10 months, Konstantin Yoroshenko's trial date is finally here. A jury is deciding his destiny. If found guilty, he will spend from 10 years to a life sentence behind bars. Anastasia Cherkina, RT, New York. In all it, like she said, the United States has a habit of kidnapping people. It, and Gitmo is full of people who are innocent, never committed a crime, and were kidnapped by the United States and brought to Guantanamo Bay. 
And like they said, I mean, it's uh, against international law, but the United States doesn't care about international law. Just like the international court that uh, Clinton signed the treaty, but when Bush two came in, he unsigned it. And Obama is leaving it unsigned, and he's saying the same thing Bush did. We don't have to listen to you, but you have to listen to us because we're the most powerful country in the world. Bullshit. Yes, we are the most powerful country in the world. Being the most powerful country in the world doesn't mean that we can stick our nose in everybody else's business. doesn't mean that we can uh, send the CIA and, and get rid of uh, murder legitimate governments and put in our own own people. I mean, look what we've done. 72 countries, we replace elected governments with dictatorships because the elected governments didn't like us. Of course they didn't like us because the United States is full of shit. And it's the people of the United States that are suffering along with everybody else. I mean, the Americans aren't hated. The U.S. government is hated. The Americans generally are good people. Yes, we got our bigots. We got ignoramuses like that clown in Gainesville, Florida, who burned the, the Koran. We've got the, the KKK, the Aryan Nation. And all these idiots that think white folks are so superior of everybody, even though white folks are the minority of the world. I mean, they had to get to power because they don't like being the minority of the world. And the Christians don't like any other religion, even though they're just as good as the Christians are. I mean, we got problems, big problems. And we have to straighten our government's act out. A while ago, I did a, I did a video, this is a soundtrack from it, called We Have to Fight to Get Our Country Back. Hello? My name is Lee Gaylord, also known as the Crazy Old Man, and this is the Crazy Old Man Network. Today I'm going to talk about our country and how we're losing it. 
we have a big problem. And instead of being run by the people, our country is being run by big corporations and the bankers. And we have to put a stop to that. In order to do that, we have to make sure that our elected representatives are working for us and not the bankers and the big corporations. How do we do that? Anyone running for office accepting money from the big corporations, the bankers, and other er, groups that are trying to influence for their benefit and not ours what Congress does and what the President does has to be eliminated. How do we eliminate them? We don't vote for people who are accepting money from the corporations. Now when Obama ran, he was saying that he was only taking money from the man on the street, the people. He was saying he was a people, going to be the people's president. Is he? No. Somehow, the bankers got control of them. And the large corporations. Our economy is going down the tubes along with our country because of this. We need to fight for our rights. We need to fight for our Constitution. We need to fight for our country. And those who say whatever the President says is alright with me are traitors. Simple as that. Traitors or just plain ignorant. We have to realize that sometimes our politicians are trying to screw us. Many times they are screwing us. And we have to stop that. And the only way to put a stop to it is don't vote for the clowns. Like I say, anybody that is collecting money from the rich bill folks should not be elected. Simple as that. Because they don't care about us. All they care about is a few hundred rich folks and to hell with the millions of other people. So what are you going to do come election time? Well, hopefully you aren't going to vote for Republicans because they're definitely trying to kill us. And hopefully you won't vote for the Democrats either because they're taking the money too. What we need to do is to get rid of the lobbyists, make it illegal, make it illegal for any 
willing to give more than, say, $100 to a campaign, oh, maybe even make it $1,000. But even that seems a little high. The government needs to put more money into the campaigns so that people running for office can get some advertising. There should be a spending limit. Everybody should be advertising the same amount. When I went into accounting a little over 40 years ago, corporations were not allowed to contribute to political campaigns. A few years later that changed. And they were allowed, but there was a top amount, I believe it was $5,000. And that changed. And now they can give anything they want. Foreign countries are not supposed to be able to donate, but they do through people who are from that country. Most of the money comes from Israel. And the problem is, most of that's our money. Money that, our, that ignorant people in our government gave to Israel so they could run our country. Now again, whenever I talk about Israel, I'm not talking about the Jews. In fact, I think most Jews are anti-Zionists. But I'm talking about the Zionists. Think about it. When it comes up to election time, candidate comes to you and says, gee, I need some money. Say, well, who are you getting your money from? Let me see something on paper. And that's another thing. The guy gets more strict on telling the people who we're getting our money from. Maybe not each individual, but corporations and anyone giving more than a thousand dollars. In fact, that shouldn't be allowed anyway. Hopefully, the people can do something about it. Hopefully, we'll be able to get our country back. But the only way we can do it is to act on it. Let our politicians know that we're sick of the BS. What the heck? We're sick of the bullshit. Goodbye. Okay, now the temptations in war.